You're listening to Branch Out by Sycamore. I was 41 years old. I'd just been thrust into this role. I was one of the youngest people in the room. All the shareholders were older than me. And now I was going to be judged by how successfully I ran the organization. And I thought, well, what are the markers? I mean, I wasn't real sophisticated in business KPIs and what your goals were. And everybody talked about a guy who was a a big investor guy named Warren Buffett. Yeah. And he was this successful guy who was able to do well and everybody respected whatever he was doing. And so in my unsophisticated way, I said, well, as long as the VEP stock does better than the Warren Buffett stock, these doctors can't criticize me. There you go. And so that's what I did. I'm Larson Hicks, CEO of Sycamore, and welcome to Branch Out, where I chat with healthcare professionals about broad-reaching topics like their careers in medicine, hobbies and pursuits outside the hospital, and everything in between. In this episode, I'm joined by Dr. Steve Marin, president of VEP Healthcare, which is the eighth largest emergency medicine group in the nation. From his early start as an EMT, he discovered his calling in medicine providing care at a free clinic in Sacramento, where he witnessed the problem of maldistribution of healthcare firsthand. After stints in academics and serving in third world countries, Dr. Marin eventually signed on with VEP, which at that time was mostly rural ERs. During his 20 years at the helm, VEP has seen incredible growth. Dr. Marin talks about learning business around the kitchen table and his fascinating journey into medical leadership. Enjoy this episode with Dr. Steve Marin. Well, Dr. Marin, it's it's so great to have you on Sycamore's Branch Out podcast. This is a this is an episode we've been really looking forward to. Good, I'm excited. Yeah. Well, so just to give you kind of background on why we're doing this and what what this podcast is about, we've we've tried to the theme of this podcast is branching out, and uh, you know our company is really interested in encouraging physicians to think outside the box and to and to uh, pursue um, their interests uh, wherever that might take them, right? And and to and to find a work life balance and build a career around uh, what what they. Uh, what what inspires them and what they're interested in. So you're you're a physician who has done a lot of really really outside of the box things and and so I'm I'm excited to hear your story and we hope that it'll be an encouragement and inspiration to uh, other physicians. Yeah, so let's I mean one of the things I like to start with in these conversations is is this is kind of one of those um kind of framing conversa- questions that that I think helps um, set the stage for the rest of the conversation. I'd love to hear you, um, give me your, your view of what is the mission of a physician? It's simply to care and help others. Yeah, that's good. So, and, and then you're, you're a physician. So what, what about, what about, um, medicine? I mean, what, what's your own personal, uh, journey to medicine and, and, and your own, how, how do you view it in terms of your calling um, and purpose as a physician? Yeah. So I, it wasn't obvious to me at a young age that this is where I was going. I yeah. was born and raised in Oxnard, California. I remember um, finishing high school. I came home after I graduated and I told my mom that I had sat in a classroom for the very last time in my life <laughs> and I was done. Yeah. And I had no interest or ambition or interest in going on with schooling or education. I right. thought once you finished high school, that was it. Right. 
Um, so I didn't come at it the same way. And then that summer, I went off with a buddy and traveled through Mexico for seven weeks. I saw a fair amount of poverty mm. in Mexico. Mm. I didn't quite know how to to understand that, put it into context. Right. Came back, and mom uh, truly wanted me to go to school. We compromised. I went to junior college for one semester. Mm. I took basketball, gymnastics, and a philosophy course. And at the end of that semester, I came home and told mom that I was right. She was wrong. I wasn't cut out for school. <laughs> And I quit. And I was done with my education, <laughs> nice. for formal education at least. And traveled again, uh, went up to Canada. Hmm. I really got to see other parts of the country. And when I came back from that, um, I was interested in work. And I like camping, hiking, fishing. Not fishing, camping, hiking. And, um, and so I decided to go advanced first aid and then become an EMT. So went to junior college and took an EMT course, got a job on an ambulance. And that was really interesting. Hmm. Hmm. Taking up patients, seeing that accident scene or transferring patients, uh, I really started getting interested. I bought a medical dictionary so I could start reading the chart, figuring out what was going on hmm. on transfer patients. And after working the ambulance, I decided I'll try a biology course. Hmm. So I went to junior college, took that, and that went okay. So I took another course and eventually finished junior college and then uh, thought, well, what's next? And I went up to a four-year school from there and I thought, well, maybe medicine. And so I got to four-year school. I signed up for the science classes. I got in there. I asked the kid next to me, what are you going for? He goes, I'm going to be a doctor. <laughs> I went to this one. They said, what are you going to be? He says, I'm going to be a doctor. And I thought, wow, all these people want to be doctors. I guess there's no need for me to go into medicine. <laughs> right. And I dropped all my science classes. I thought I was done with that field. <laughs> um, and I started working in a clinic in Sacramento called Clinica Tepati. Okay. And at this clinic, I used my EMT skills where I was doing blood pressures and pulse sure. and do vital signs. Yeah for patients who are coming in for free care on the weekends. Hmm. And I'm thinking, why am I providing this care in a relatively big city, Sacramento, California? Yeah. And there's a lot of hospitals in the city, and yet here I am working in the free clinic on Saturdays. Hmm. And that's when I started to understand this maldistribution of healthcare, hmm. where just because there may be enough doctors, it doesn't mean there's enough doctors for the right populations, right. the right neighborhoods, or the right parts of the state. And then I became fired up to go into medicine. Wow. What a journey. And, and, uh, I love that. I mean, it's kind of like, there's a lot of, there's a lot of fields that are like this. I think of, I think of, um, you know, uh, people that are called into the ministry. It's like you, you, you almost want the people who didn't want to be there to be the ones that yeah. end up in it. And, and, and medicines, medicine's similar, I think in a lot of ways. Um, so that's a, that's, that's a great story. So you've, you've, um, and you've done so much in your career. I mean, I, I, I didn't mention this at the top, although I'm sure we'll record an intro where I, where I talk about this, but you are the, uh, the president CEO of Valley Emergency Physicians. Um, you, you've been a physician and, and still practice, right? That's correct. Still practicing clinically, but you've also done a lot with wilderness medicine and, and doctors without borders and, um, and so I'm interested in how, in, in kind of the journey to, to running a business. I mean, so, you know, the, it sounded like you were interested in, in, in providing care to people in, 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 you know, um, outside of the traditional, you know, uh, spaces where they're, where they're being cared for. But, but how, what led you to get into the business side of medicine? I had grown up in a family business. Mm -hmm. Mom and dad had a small printing shop. Okay. And so when you were 14 years old, you were already working in there on the weekends yeah. to empty the trash cans or refill the water dispensers, items like yeah. that. 
Then once you turned 16, the requirement in our family was that you then worked after school. So mm -hmm. as soon as you got with, done with your last class, you jumped in the car, you drove off, and I did wrapping, shipping, and deliveries. That's awesome. So from 16, 17, 18, that was my job after school every day. Uh, it was a great way to learn how to drive. I did a ton of driving. And, yeah. and you made a difference you know, to the company. Yeah. And mom and dad always felt like you need to learn that company. It's a family business. Yeah. Then when I turned 18, then I went full-time with the company. And it wasn't too long after we started that mom became sick. She was mm. the uh, billing accounting department. She was ill. Dad called us up on a Saturday. He and mom were traveling at the time. And they said, mom's sick. We're not going to make it home. Hmm. Uh, you two, my brother's two years older, you two will have to go in this weekend, figure out payroll that's due on Tuesday. Oh, wow. So my brother and I went in, and we had never worked in the accounting part. We'd worked in the production side. Yeah. And so we had to go through and try and figure out and look at the patterns, what had been done before wow. to figure out the pay for the next. And then we found these tables that figured out the federal deductions, state deductions, and we did the <laughs> math, and we were able to produce a payroll for everybody on Tuesday. Wow. None of them were accurate, <laughs> but everybody got a check. That's right. That's incredible. I I love that story. I'm I'm something I'm obsessed with and talk about all the time is I'm I'm I lament the the loss of the institution of the household, and by that I I don't mean the place we all go, but I mean the idea of of a productive household where mom, dad, kids are are in a family business together and, and the inheritance that, that you, you, uh, create for your children. Um, and, and sometimes it's, it's, it's a business, right. That they take on and run. I'm curious to hear about the printing shop, if that's still open and still running today. Um, but it's also yeah, the skills, us, right. And the experience. Yeah. For, for my brother and I, we called it the, our education was the six o'clock dinner hour. Yeah. When mom and dad and my brother and I sat down yeah. and we talked about what was happening in the business and what the problems were, and dad threw out challenges to us at night. Maybe they were riddles or they were business problems that he had. How would you boys solve this? Yeah. For all I know, they weren't even real problems. Right. But at the time, I was passionately engaged in how do we solve this conundrum wow. that he was facing. And that was where most of our education came in. Wow. And mom and dad talked about their aspects of their lives. And as you said, it was the household. That's amazing. That's, I mean, that, that in and of itself is, is enough. Uh, I mean, that, that's a, that's a big enough idea and concept, I think, to encourage a lot of people to think about, um, right there. Um, so that, but, but let's continue. Cause I'm, I'm interested in sort of the rest of the story. So you, you, um, you found, did you find that you, I mean, you clearly had a knack for it. I mean, you guys, you guys were able to, to get payroll out, uh, with, with a very little, uh, with very little training. Um, so d did that kind of give you this sense that, you know, I, I can, I can fend for myself. I can figure things out and kind of a confidence about business. Yeah, I think we really did have that DNA for business because mm -hmm. we'd grown up talking about business. Yeah. We had the DNA for it. And then confidence. Uh, again, the household, you have mother and father who are always saying, right. you know, you can do, you can try. Right. And allowed us the freedoms to try things and fail. Yeah. That was perfectly acceptable. You just try things. So for me, I finished uh, college and went to medical school. I put in my application that I want to go and do rural and international medicine. Mm. Because those were the two areas where I thought there was, the again, the maldistribution of healthcare. There wasn't the access. Yeah. And then I finished medical school, applied to residency, and I put on my application, I want to do rural and international medicine. Mm. And I did my three years of residency. And at the end of those three years, I was then ready for both. So I joined VEP Healthcare mm -hmm. 
and I did rural medicine with the group. And then I also joined Doctors Without Borders, which sent me overseas where I did international medicine. Wow. And that really became my practice for the next nine years of my career, going in and out of the U.S., doing international. And then when I returned, VEP always was able to find work for me in the rural locations. Mm -hmm. And and I must say life was idyllic. It really uh, gave me an opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. Practice my craft. Yeah. Make a difference. So what was VEP at that time? Was VEP just a a traditional um, kind of democratic group at that time? Kind of small? Yes. Very small. Uh, We have a shareholder meeting. We could all fit around two tables. Mm. You know, you had about 10 or 15 people who were the owners. We had uh, our largest ER contract was about 6,000 visits per year, wow. not per month, per year. <laughs> you know, so if you had six or eight patients in 24 hours, that was a busy yeah. day. And we would do what we called 168s. Okay. So you think about it, doing a 12-hour shift or a 24, we would do a 168. You go in, you'd work the ER for 168 hours or seven days in a row, and then somebody else would relieve you and they would do wow. it. And it wasn't until ERs got busier that you'd cut it back to just four days in a row or three days in a row. Right. Wow. Wow. Um, how, how was um, how, how did rural you know practicing rural medicine in small hospitals compare to the third world? I mean, did did you feel like you were you were seeing some overlap in, in the in the um, in those two experiences? I did that fine for myself that I needed to be needed. Hmm. And when I worked in a rural community, five o'clock, there's no other doctor in the hospital. I'm it. Yeah. And everybody in this community who needed emergency health care was going to come to me. You feel like you make a difference. And I had worked suburban later on in my career. And I found like, gee, if I didn't show up for work one day, there'd be somebody else who would show up for me. But in the rural place, you were it. And if you had a difficult intubation or a problem, you were going to do it. And your backup was calling 911 and hoping the paramedic showed up and was better than intubation of you. So you really had to be up on your skill set. You had to be able and confident enough to do whatever was necessary. Yeah. Because you were it. Yeah. I, and, and it comes, it, 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 there's a correlation, I think, between rural medicine and that experience that you had where your mom got sick and, and you guys had to get, do payroll. It's, it's this, it's a similar kind of, Hey, look, uh, you know, this has to get done. Somebody has to do it. You're it. Um, you're kind of the last, last line of defense, figure it out. Um, I, 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 um, when it comes to parenting, I see a lot of parents, you know, a common phrase is, you know, if you want me to treat you like a man, you need to act like a man. And, and I'm kind of on the other end of the spectrum where it's like, I'm going to treat you like a man, um, you know, to my sons. And I expect you to, to, to behave like a man and figure it out. And, and I think that's a, that's a, you know, so many, there's so many, um, people in medicine who, who become sort of institutionalized to over the 20, 30 years that they're in school, uh, they get used to, always having somebody standing there telling them what to do next. And, um, and we, we say this all the time to doctors that rural medicine is a really wonderful opportunity to throw yourself in the deep end and really your training starts to really, really yeah. matter. That's quite true. So, you know, um, you, you, um, so something that I, that I, that we see a lot and, and I don't know if this, this, um, this, jives with your story at all, but, but we, we've seen so much physician burnout in, in emergency medicine. And, and I wonder if this, this phenomenon that you talk about of needing to be needed and feeling essential and feeling valued and seeing the impact you're making when you're working, 
you know, in, in West Africa or Bosnia or wherever it is. Right. And, um, or in rural, in a rural facility, physicians, you know, so much these days feel like a cog in the, in a huge machine that they have no control over. Um, and it seems that that's one of the big, one of the big contributing factors to burnout. How, how do you see that? Yeah. Fortunate. For example, I was in Nicaragua, a woman got hit in the eye and had lacerated her eye, her eye, her globe. Mm. And so what do you do? You, well, you have to repair it. I had zero experience with that. Never done anything like that in my career. So I told the woman that we were going to take her to the operating room. And I told the operating room that we were going to start the case in one hour. And so go ahead and get her ready. And then I went back and I got my two books uh, looking up, how do you anesthetize an eyeball? Never done that before. And then how do you repair an eyeball laceration? Wow. And then I brought the books into the OR with me and I propped them up so I could read as I went along if I needed to. And I anesthetized her eye, anesthetized, and then went ahead and did the repair. And my first suture, I looked at that, I was like, God, that that didn't go very well. (laughs) I had too big of suture. It was a 6.0. It was way too big. I found a 9.0 and now was able to start closing it with a 9.0. And, you know, I don't know if she kept her vision or not. But I know that had I done nothing, she was definitely going to lose the eye. And so you have to be willing to take a chance. And it's better than the alternative. You know, you look around, you say, well, you are the standard of care. You're the only doctor in this war zone in Nicaragua. You do your best, and that's the best available. I was struck by a patient who came in. I asked, where are you from? And the patient said, I'm from a three-day walk. What does that mean? I walked three days to get here to ask you to help me. Wow. Wow. You think you make a difference? This person wouldn't give up three days, walk three days in a row just to get whatever advice or medicine you can provide them. Yeah, really six days, right? I mean, they're com- yeah. they're committing the walk to and from. That's amazing. So yeah. so how did how did all of this, you know, translate to you you know, moving into a leadership position at VEP? Was that the next was that kind of the next step in your career? You know, it it happened to be, but it wasn't. Uh, when I was in the U.S., I did not attend department meetings, not something I'm proud of, but yeah. I was still, I think, a little bit <laughs> rebellious mode. I thought any doctor who goes to a hospital meeting is wasting the time they could be used to care for patients. Right, right. So I thought meetings were inappropriate use of doctor time. Sure. And for eight years in the U.S., I never went to any meetings. And then I was working at one ER, and our medical director gave notice, and I realized that I had more seniority than anybody else. Mm. So I was the logical next person to become the medical director. So I went home and told my wife that we were going to have an emergency vacation, and we went down to San Diego, and this was before there were cell phones, and so I knew that the president of the group couldn't call me to ask me to be director. He'd have to find somebody else because I wasn't around. Nice. And I hid for a week, and then when I came back and figured the coast was clear, he called me up and asked if I was interested in being director. I explained to him that I was irresponsible, immature, <laughs> not suitable for this, and I had a bad attitude with hospital administrators, and so it would be a bad decision for the organization. And he responded, I remember his words, he said, tough, you're it anyway. <laughs> that's great. Thus, I became the medical director. Oh, that's great. So once you were the medical director, that's like, okay, well, I want to do a good job at what I do, sure. and I had to learn how to be a medical director. Yeah. And just one year into that, uh, the board of directors at VEP Healthcare opened up a spot, and I went on the board of directors. Mm. And then the year after that, our president of VEP decided to resign. Mm. And so once he left, then there was an opening, and the board looked around the table and said, well, who should be the director? And I raised my president. I raised my hand. And now I got to marry up my DNA for business yeah. 
with my passion for healthcare as the president. Wow. And that became a very good formula. Wow. That's amazing. And that was how long ago? So that was in 2001. Okay. I was 41 years old. I'd just been thrust into this role. I was one of the youngest people in the room. All the shareholders were older than me. And now I was going to be judged by how successfully I ran the organization. And I thought, well, what are the markers? I mean, I wasn't real sophisticated in business KPIs and what your goals were. And everybody talked about a guy who was a a big investor guy named Warren Buffett. Yeah. And he was this successful guy who was able to do well and everybody respected whatever he was doing. And so in my unsophisticated way, I said, well, as long as the VEP stock does better than the Warren Buffett stock, these doctors can't criticize me. There you go. And so that's what I did. And then for the next 20 years, we've outperformed Warren Buffett every year. And I figure that's kept the wolves at bay and they can't criticize me. <laughs> that's great. That's a great benchmark. I love that. What's the, what's yeah. the, what's the growth rate of, of what's the average growth rate for, for uh, Warren Buffett or for his, his portfolio? Is that, is that what you were comparing against? So since I became president of VP, we've managed to double in size every five years over the last 20 years. And in part, we're doubling, not just because the goal is to become larger and larger, but because there's a real demand out there for uh, what we provide, higher quality, compassionate healthcare to those in need. And so hospitals keep contacting us. That's fantastic. Well, that's an incredible statistic and and a a testament to your your leadership. I'm I'm really excited to to learn more about, you know, how how did that happen? I mean, how how do you, what do you attribute the, that growth to, I mean, you already mentioned that there's always going to be a need for compassionate care, but, but what, what, um, you know, specific, what specific initiatives or things have you put in place over the years that you think have, have contributed? Initially it was the recognition that quality was going to be important. And truth be told, when you do rural medicine, virtually every dollar you collect has to go to the providers because there's just no dollars left over. So if we wanted to build high quality programs, we needed to get, contracts that had larger amounts of revenue and we did that by getting larger sites and then that produced a quality program and it became like the flywheel every time the flywheel goes around it gets a little bit more momentum then we developed a program called rapid patient management rpm where we at the time it was a bit revolutionary we put a provider out front so that when the patient came in instead of telling their story to the to the registration clerk and then going back to the room going back to the the waiting room and then telling their story to the triage nurse and then going back to the waiting room and then getting pulled back to the back and then they tell the story to the nurse and then they wait and the doctor walks in and he says, tell me why you're here. And they tell the story four times. So what we did is we put a provider out front with the registration clerk and the triage nurse, all three of them in the same room at the same time with the patient. So the patient told the story mm-hmm. one time. And as the registration clerk was pulling up information, the nurse was getting the vital signs and the doctor was playing with little Johnny's ankles and toes to mm-hmm. get him more comfortable. And then he could ask his questions while the registration clerk was putting information in. The nurse is writing down the vitals. And then when the doctor finished the exam and says, little Johnny has a has a ear infection and we're going to prescribe these antibiotics, the doctor then turns to write the discharge instructions and write the antibiotics. And the nurse is now finishing up her assessment of the patient. And the registration clerk is finishing out that part so that the patient can be seen, diagnosed, treated, and discharged from mm. the same room. And we found that when we did that at a large ER, 60,000 visit ER, 
30,000, 50% of our patients could be seen, diagnosed, treated, and discharged from the front mm. two rooms, leaving the entire back of the hospital open for the other 30,000 patients who were really sick. And this became much yeah. more efficient, and patients loved it, hospitals loved it, and we continued awesome. to grow. You know, the the thing about that that I think is is interesting and, and you've as you've kind of told your story of, of how you've you arrived in this position and, and how you were raised and, and your training, you know, around the dinner table, um, what what I th- and 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 I, what I've what I've always loved about you, every conversation we've had is is you, you seem to me to be a, a, the kind of guy who sees a problem, has, you know, has has a an idea for a solution and just tackles it. And and you're not necessarily somebody who, who says, well, nobody else does it this way. Um, you know, we're not allowed to do it this way. Or we're not supposed to do it this way. Um, and, and I can see, I can see how your, your background and your upbringing sort of prepared you for that. But would you say that's a fair assessment of kind of your, your leadership style? Yeah. It's funny you say that because we had a motto in our company, it's business, not as usual. So when we started a new ER contract, and the, one of the first things you hear is, well, that's not how we've yep. been doing it. And we say, good, great, because <laughs> we're thinking how you've been doing it led you to lose the contract right. to the last group. And we don't want to lose the contract. So we that's want to right. do it differently. And so that was the hmm. entree to change in the way things were done yeah, at the that's hospital. Awesome. That's awesome. Yeah, it's it's uh, and, and, and I imagine that the cultural the cultural integration, you know, when when you've got a new contract between your new team and the and the and the team that's on the ground that, that's staying behind the nurses and administration that that's a real difficult um that's a difficult transition to make how, how do you guys navigate that uh, you have to have pro- you have to have foundation where do you come from what's important to you what are the things that you uh hold sacred that you won't mm-hmm. change and then you bring those forward and simultaneously we want to understand how it's done so seek first mm-hmm. to understand so that we can accept and modify for that which is successful but i'll not forget one of the important pieces for our organization is that people be treated with respect uh women nurses etc and so one of my doctors was in the uh the medical executive committee meeting and the chief of staff referred to the broads in the or and so my doctor stood up and he says um doctor so and so that's not acceptable uh, we can't use that type of language when referring to other people. I need you to apologize so we continue wow. the meeting. And this uh, chief of staff was actually a big orthopedic guy, and he turns and just stared at my doctor <laughs> and said, what? And my doctor basically repeated, inappropriate behavior has to be uh, apologized for so we can continue the meeting. And the doctor looked at him and said, I apologize? <laughs> and my doctor said, thank you very much. Let's continue That's the meeting. Awesome. Oh, I love that. Nicely done. Nicely done. That's outstanding. <laughs> Well, it is, you know, I mean, that, that, that's a skill. I mean, that's, that's a skill right there that an under, under, uh, understood and, and mastered skill for, for all of life, but just the ability to apologize and, and especially, you know, the, the, um, the culture that a lot of physicians have. I mean, we see it all the time. These physicians who think they're God's gift to medicine and the hospital and, and you get these big clashes. I mean, you get these big clashes and, you know, in our business, we're, we're sending new doctors to new places. And so every, every assignment is a new potential for fireworks. And, and so we're doing a, a lot of coaching right. of, you know, look, 
you're you got to take your cultural background into into account. You grew up in the mean streets in New York. You're going to a rural facility in in Mississippi. You're gonna have to you have to stop and say hi to people and ask them how they're doing. And 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 you might even give a hug to the you know to the to the you know scheduling lady when you see her. What you know there, there's just a, it's a different cultural thing. You got to be sensitive to that, right? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, and as you say, you have to be able to make mistakes and go on. Uh, the two things that I often think about as we have in our culture in the group here is uh, the enemy is uh, a perfection yeah. is the enemy yeah. of good. And sometimes you do a good job. It doesn't have to be perfect because you got to keep moving. But I'll not forget a case where I had uh, I'd, uh, upset the city at a hospital that was owned by the city. And I had to now go in front of the city council to apologize for my error. And the line I used, uh, which hit me at the time, I said, judge me not by my perfection, but judge me by my response to my yeah, imperfection. That's, that's great. H how do you how do you build that into a culture? I mean, just building a culture of people who are 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 willing to apologize. I find that that is not something a lot of people have have grown up doing in their families or, or, you know, with their friends, it's just not a, not a thing they're used to, to doing is saying, I'm sorry, I was wrong. I messed up. I meant to mess up. It was, you know, I, I did, I did this on purpose even sometimes. Right. And that was, and I was just wrong. It was a, it was a mistake. Yeah. It, part of culture is the repetition. That's how a society learns a culture. It's what's being yeah, done over yeah. and over again. And so we always have to reflect that if it's respect for various individuals, uh, we do it everywhere, department meetings, shareholder meetings. And we also believe it's important to call people out, yeah. like I mentioned earlier. So we would have this experience where I would be speaking at a shareholder meeting. I'm in front of everybody. I'm the president yeah. of the organization. And I would say something that was inappropriate. And one of the people in the audience would call me out. Uh, Dr. Marin, that's inappropriate. I need you to apologize for what you said. And you're kind of in front of an audience of a couple hundred people. And you apologize. You know, you're right. I was wrong. I'm sorry. Right. And then you move forward. And so the whole audience gets to see uh, that a person, any individual can call up the top dog of a company, hold them accountable. And how does a president of a company respond to that? And they get to see it's okay to yeah. say you're sorry yeah. in front of everybody. That's great. Well, I, I think that's, I think that's really, really um, laudable. And, and I mean, that's, that's a life skill that, that people are, are picking up and I'm sure it comes in handy, you know, um, in the rest of their life to learn how to just say, sorry, I was wrong. I screwed up. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. So, um, what, what, what have been, um, just in, in your career, we've, we've talked a bit about just kind of your story and how you ended up in the role that you're in today. Um, you're still practicing. Um, I, I know that, I know that, that that you've done some wilderness medicine. Is that is that something that that is still uh, something you're involved in? No, it really was early in my career. I uh, was still trying to figure out which direction I was going, and had a fascination at that time. Got but it. Moved Got on. It. Um, so so t so what's what have been kind of the um, the the advice? You know, what what's been the advice that you've received in your career that's made the biggest impact on on you? You have two ears, one mouth, use them in that mm, proportion. That's great. That's good. So be a listener. You learn more when you listen than when you talk. Uh, whether it's with a patient, if you sit and listen, whether you're in a meeting, if you're listening, and then 
you have a greater impact when you do yeah. choose your words. That's outstanding. Is there a is there a a motto or a mantra you know that you that you live by or that or that you that you like your cl- your company to to your, your physicians to think about living by when they're in the ER? I think it's more important to make a decision and move forward than to be paralyzed by uh, inability mm. to decide. So in our company, we take mm. chances. And as I say, if it doesn't work, uh, it's like, all right, hallelujah. We've now learned that yeah. that doesn't work. That's actually valuable knowledge yeah. we've gained as opposed to a blame culture, which is you made a mistake, yeah. you did something wrong. That's great. Uh, so our culture has been innovative. We're willing to take chances and try different things. My organization has supported me as I've gone down, and not everything I do works. And sometimes the mistakes get more expensive as you get higher up in an organization. But as I say, wow, you made a $100,000 mistake. We'll never have to make that mistake again. <laughs> right. Why would you let That's go right. of that person? Yeah. There's a there's one of my favorite authors that I, I I find myself mentioning on this podcast a lot is is Nassim Taleb um, and his one of his last books was called Skin in the Game and um, and I think that's a that's that that's a, a piece of that that puzzle um, is when you give people ownership you give them responsibility you you put some skin in the game and and you're right you know, they're they're going to make mistakes but they're there's no better way to really truly learn from your mistakes than to actually have to own them and live with them. Um, we talk about uh, a motto that my old company, um, my our old CEO, the company I used to work at, had, and, and I've carried forward at this company is is to fail forward, um, to to right, and it's, yeah. it's that same idea. So what what have been some of the more surprising things, you know, as as the company as your careers. Um, developed as the company has, has grown, what, what surprised you about, about this, this business? Hmm. I think I was most surprised by the difficulty of getting physicians to be owners in the hmm. practice. We have a model where it's a provider owned provider run group. Uh, we go to the providers. We say, you should buy stock in the group, be an owner. You would benefit by the work of everybody because all of the benefits go back to yeah. you, the owner. There's no outside owners. There's no Wall Street involved. So be one of the owners. And we had a very hard time getting people to buy stock. Mm. Um, couldn't make sense of it. And then our stock is outperforming Berkshire Hathaway. We outperform Warren Buffett. So buy stock. And it's like they've had 101 different reasons why people haven't bought stock. But that's been one of the surprises yeah. to me. I just just reluctance to be an owner. It's, it's interesting, isn't it? It's, it's not, um, I don't, I don't know what, what it is about our culture, but I, I get it. I mean, I, I, I was at a company where I had an opportunity to buy stock and, and, you know, it, it seemed like every, every year when I had the opportunity to buy stock, it was also right around Christmas. And I was asking, you know, do I, does this go towards the Christmas presents for the kids or does this go towards <laughs> stock? And, and, you know, unfortunately I kept, I kept, putting it into Christmas presents and I kicked myself, you know, when that company, when that company was bought and sold and bought and sold a couple times. Uh, but, 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 you know, I had, I had skin in the game. I, I, you know, or in that case I didn't have skin in the game, but I learned, man, I would have, I, I would have really, I would have really benefited from that. I'm going to, I'm not going to make that mistake again. Yeah. Smart. So, so, um, okay. So I, I'm interested in, in just, it, from a um, from a clinical standpoint, I mean, what what have been some of the more crazy experiences you've had, and 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 uh, 
formative experiences that you've had in the in the emergency department? Um, I think in the emergency department, uh, formative has been when I was working in Zenica, actually in Bosnia Herzegovina. Was the end towards the end of that war. Uh, you'd have these mine accidents where people would have stepped on a landmine and then they would come into the ER. We were really there for a lot of teaching. And so it was a unique uh, situation for us to try to teach emergency medicine in a country that didn't have any history mm. of emergency medicine. So, for example, patient walks into the ER uh, and the question would be, you know, why are you here? Well, I have pneumonia. Oh, that's medical. Or I can't breathe. That's medical. Or I have a laceration. Oh, that's surgical. And you would go to one or right. the other. And they didn't have the concept that a physician could manage both hmm. sides of that and that we could take care of these patients and discharge them without getting either a surgical consult or a medical consult. That was really a uh, change. I didn't realize that's how it was in other parts of the world. Yeah, it's really interesting. Yeah, and it, it, it's um, you know something that we've learned is there 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 really is a lot of benefit to to retaining you keeping the ball in your court and and maintaining you know the, there's a i think there's a tendency in our in our modern kind of henry ford mindset that we want to specialize 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 and kind of you know hand the ball off to somebody you know and, and pass the buck so to speak and and i love uh and and i encourage our team here to to keep the ball in your court. If, if, if there's a way you can do it and you can make sure it gets done right, you know, keep it in your court. Um, instead of, instead of trying to hand off, hand it off to someone else and, and then use them as kind of a scapegoat for the fact that it didn't work out the way that you wanted it to. Exactly. And your career is more yeah. rewarding that way for, for me to, I work mostly night shifts. So like in March, I actually worked eight night shifts and I had patients coming in at two in the morning you could call an anesthesia to put them to sleep, or yeah. you could do it yourself. You could uh, do the dislocation yourself, or you could call an ortho. And you really do a benefit to the community and the patients when you have the skill set where you're able to do yeah. all of those items and let the other community physicians get some sleep that night because they have a full OR yeah, schedule the great. next day. Well, and that's, I mean, the, you, you, I feel like you see that. You've, you've got a lot of, I talk to a lot of emergency physicians who feel like they're really the cream of the crop because they work in a huge academic center. And and, uh, and from a, you know, from a, um, in one sense, yes, they they're, they're exposed to more, probably more complicated cases and things, but there's also so many specialists and subspecialties that support that they have there that, um, that they don't have the, the opportunity to sew up an eyeball <laughs> like you did or, or right. Um, and so, and so yeah. I, I like that. Yeah. I think that's great. Um, so I was working night shift. We had a, a 29 year old female who stopped breathing, came in. Uh, so we had to do a quick intubation. This is a new hospital for us. We haven't worked there before at uh, my first time with the crew. And so we get through the intubation. And then I realized afterwards, you know, they didn't know who I was. They were a little bit worried, perhaps. How is this skill set? We've never worked with him and vice versa. I've never worked with these nurses. And so then afterwards, I said, why don't we do an, an educational it's three in the morning. It's ER is quieting down, and we'll do an intubation uh, teaching. It took ten minutes, but we talked about okay, what if this method had failed? What was my backup method? Okay, I had the video laryngoscope. Okay, now I've got the manual without the video. Okay, that failed. Then I would do a retro. How would you do a retro? Okay, where is the equipment if I had to do a crike? And to have the whole department go through that, find out where that equipment is and how we would do it is really educational. The nurses love yeah. the education. It yeah. only takes ten minutes. 
But it's also good for you to run through what's your backup plan? What do you do third? What do you do fourth? What if that doesn't work? Then what? Uh, because you don't want to have to start thinking those things out for the first time in a cross situation at two in the morning when there's nobody around. And your best thing you can do is call 911 and wait for an ambulance yep. to arrive. You got to know what to do. That's awesome. You know, there's, there's, um, and, and I, I keep coming back to parenting, but it, but it really is something that, that, that we've tried to think about my wife and I with our kids is we don't want to just always be busting people for doing the wrong thing. We, we want to be preparing people for this, our kids, for the situations that we know they're inevitably going to face. And we want to, we want to kind of walk through the scenario. So we're going to walk into this situation, this potential problem or this particular, you know, potential situation could arise. How are you going to handle it? You know, what, what, what would wisdom look like in that situation? And it's, it's a great way to, um, to equip people for success, you know, versus, um, you know, just always, always busting people for failure. Um, and also what a great way as a, as a physician, I think, I think a lot of, uh, emergency physicians, um, shrink back from in, in the same way that, that you talked about you you've been surprised that folks have been not, haven't been very interested in as interested in, in ownership as, as you would have expected. I think in the same way, there's, there's a resistance to responsibility and leadership. Um, when really, I mean, the ER doctors should be the leaders of of the emergency department, right? Absolutely, uh, but it's yep. a team sport. You want to work collaboratively yep. with your nurses, but when the chips are down, they look to the yep. physician. And if you watch across the nation, every time there is a, a major tragedy with multiple casualties, who's the one who steps in and starts to direct things? It becomes yep. the emergency physician. Yep. That's our training. That's great. So. Um, we, we've talked a little bit about this already, but, but one of the things that, that, um, I, again, I've, I've admired about VEP from afar is, is you continue to, to experiment and you continue to, you're not bound by how things, uh, have always been done. Um, t tell us a little bit about the, the different initiatives, uh, besides, you know, the, the, the bread and butter, obviously of an emergency, um, physician group, uh, historically is, is taking on new hospital contracts for managing emergency departments. But, but I know you guys are doing a whole lot more than, than that. T can you tell me a little bit more about some of the other things that VEP is involved in? Yeah. And I'll go two different directions. I'll go, uh, immediate clinical and non-clinical. So we start with ER medicine. And when we did that, uh, sometimes the small rural hospital need you to do multiple services to make enough revenue. So you do ER and you do outpatient simultaneously. If you had to admit a patient, you'd admit them to yourself. So you were in charge of the uh, inpatient service. And then at five o'clock, you finished all that. You'd then do rounds yep. at the nursing home. And so you can have four different service lines at one hospital. But as we grew, we added hospitalists, we added intensivists. We, uh, most recently, we've added pediatric hospitalists. And in the last 12 months, we added laborists because a hospital came to us and they asked us. And it's interesting because there's many other companies that yeah. could do laborists, but it was the relationship yeah. they had with us that said, I, even if you've never done it before, we're confident that you will be able to do yeah. a great service. So that's the clinical service lines. And right now, um, working on telemedicine and we're working to bring in uh, three other smaller physician-owned telemedicine groups into VEP and make that really our that's hub awesome. for telemedicine. Uh, when the hospital was building a medical staff office building across the street from the hospital, they wanted support. We put in money for that. That became an investment. Later on, we heard about another IT investment. That sounded interesting. We had the cash. We invested mm. in that. Uh, and then most recently, we've done a couple 
really interesting uh, investments. One is a company that was involved with post-acute care, taking care of the sickest 3% of the population of any insurance company. So you can imagine they have uh, 10,000 patients. There's going to be 3%, which are the sickest, most complicated. And that group has set up a clinic where they see the patients one-hour visits multiple times per week. And you think, gosh, how can you spend two hours a week with one patient? But considering that they average six or eight admissions to the hospital, if you could cut down those, it became very uh, successful for the patients. They Mm. stayed healthier out of the hospital, successful for the insurance company, didn't have to pay for all Mm. those admissions, successful for the group. And then most exciting, they've now gone into the Healthy Homes program where they're able to address homelessness and have a navigator who can help them uh, get into better health, get their appointments, get their MRI appointments, get them medications wow. they need, and then get the resources so they can transition out of homelessness. Wow. And, you know, it's a dream for probably everybody on this on yeah. this watching this is how do we address yeah. homelessness? And here was a company that VEP essentially uh, put in the founding yeah. dollars to start that was able to actually make a difference. And so it's a different way. It's not directly you being the one talking yeah. to the homeless patient but you having the resources to create that That's opportunity. Amazing. That's, That's amazing. Exciting. Well, I love, so, you know, there's, there's yeah. two, two pieces to that, you know, that, that I think are really interesting. One is, is the vertical integration kind of mindset, you know, the, the mindset of, you know, the hardest thing, you know, the most expensive thing that most companies do is acquire new customers. I mean, it's, it's, it's difficult. It's time consuming. It's expensive. And, uh, and, and I think, I think it was Cisco, maybe I, I saw did a, did a huge study and, and, and determined that it cost, I want to say it was like, um, it costs something like 20 times more to acquire a new customer than, than to keep, to keep an old customer, something, something like that, just in terms of dollars comparing cost per acquisition. Um, so it's so smart that you guys are are uh, looking at ways to integrate further uh, throughout the hospital and and continue adding value you've built the relationship you've proven your culture and your and your capabilities um, so I love that and then and then related to that so the VEP ventures um, stuff is another example of you know you've you've got um, you've got profit that that is um, that that you're physicians hold, you know, in, in a, or have a piece of, and you have an opportunity to sit on that, or you have an opportunity to, to actually invest it and try to grow it. And, and what a cool, what a cool, uh, idea. Yeah. And if you're able to generate more revenue by something other than the clinical practice, that revenue in my mind can be used to pay for your yeah. overhead, meaning that there's more clinical revenue that can go to the yeah. provider because you don't need as much money yeah. for the overhead. And over time, wouldn't it be amazing if you could have enough outside revenue that it paid for all your overhead so that all the clinical dollars generated were going That's back amazing. to the clinicians? There's not, you know, there's not a lot of people that think that way. Um, there's not a lot of people that, that, right. I mean, just think about, let's put, yeah. let's put money back into the business. Let's try to find ways to, 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 uh, to, you know, fund it and build, you know, it, it reminds me of, of universities that have endowments. Um, right. Yeah. With VEP, we're provider owned, provider mm-hmm. run. So there's nowhere for the money to go except back to the providers. And we even have a policy that, that doesn't allow for somebody to be too large a shareholder. The largest shareholder mm. is 7%. So it's fairly yeah. diverse and because you do want to have that benefit. Yeah, going to that's everyone. awesome. 
So what's next? I mean, what are the what are the next frontiers that you you, you talked about? Telemedicine is something you guys are 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 expanding into, and and these other um, specialties. What what other big problems does does VEP want to tackle? Uh, I think the future is artificial mm-hmm. intelligence. It is so fascinating what's happening in that regard. The patient comes into the triage window, tells the nurse various inf- stories in a narrative, and the nurse gets vital signs. And the artificial intelligence program is able to say, with a 94% confidence rate, this patient will require admission or will be able to go home, allowing the triage nurse to order a bed for admission at triage based on what the artificial intelligence says is the likely point of admission. Whereas normally the patient would go to the back, two hours of workup, and then the doctor says, I need a bed. And then it's like, oh, now we need time to find a bed. So that's amazing. Uh, with sepsis, we're seeing where artificial intelligence is diagnosing mm-hmm. sepsis earlier than the providers in mm-hmm. some cases. And how much great, how great is that for the patient? You know, it's no skin off the doctor's back to have a right. computer say, start the workup for sepsis now. And the doctor says, well, I don't see the indications, but let me start it anyway and we'll see. And then hours later, the patient suddenly spikes a fever and then you see, oh, they really did have sepsis, but the computer yeah. picked it up earlier. I think that's the, that's the forefront. We're working with a bunch of companies and in, in that just in that telemedicine AI space. And I, I think there's a ton of ton of potential there too. I, you know, the the thing that that a story that I've told a lot of times or kind of an anecdote that I think is really interesting and 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 kind of a way to overcome this this zero sum mentality that I think a lot of people have. A lot of people I, I imagine a lot of physicians when they hear you know, Steve's getting into into AI, he's trying to replace us, right? He's trying to make physicians obsolete and replace us with ro- our robot overlords. And, and I, I get that. I get that reaction that I'm sure people have. Um, but the, the thing that I think about is early in Sycamore's day, um, we had an interest in trying to create sort of a platform. Um, and, and something I learned from my years in software is, is the best user interface um, on the planet, yeah, well, let me back up. The most important piece of any software product is the user interface, right? I mean, that's where it all comes together. It's where mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's where it all breaks down. And so, and, and then take it a step further. The best user interface in the world is a human being. Um, all things being equal, there's no better interface than a human being. And there's, there's the story of, of, uh, of chess players. And there's, there is, there are grandmasters. Um, th- there are no computers that can beat a grandmaster. Still, you know, certain some grandmasters, right? There's, they, you just haven't been able to get the AI, the computers, sophisticated enough to do that. But you can take a a moderately talented uh, chess player and equip them with a computer, and 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 no grandmaster in the in the in the world can can touch them, and and it. And it, and it reminds me of, of, of kind of what you're doing and what in, in medicine or what you're thinking about here is, is, you know, if you don't see it as a threat, but you see it as an opportunity to, to enhance your, your powers as a physician, you know, far beyond what, what they've ever been, what's ever been possible. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's not about uh, trying to have somebody else not work. It's about self-preservation. Yeah. As I get older, my memory will not be as good. I see it around me. But imagine if the computer was able to augment me by expanding my differential. Don't forget that this is a possibility. Oh, I didn't mm-hmm. think about that. Maybe I would have thought about it when I was 33, but I didn't think about right. it at 63. And so 
These are all things to help the physician be more successful. It's never wrong if whatever technology is making it better right. for the patient. So if it's making it safer and better for the patient, yeah, embrace that's right. it. That's the right way to think about it. Well, and you, I, I've seen this in um, in oncology. You know, you've got you've got um, radiology, artificial intelligence that's that's involved in radiology now. That's detecting um, things that that um, that you know that, that would have been missed, you know, by, by a human radiologist. And, and again, it's a, it's a, it's a marriage. Um, um, but, but there's a, there's a lot of potential there. So is that, is that going to be something that you see, um, VEP ventures getting into? I mean, you guys are there in Silicon Valley, right? Yeah. Or, or near Silicon Valley. Right. We've already invested now in a couple, uh, I, uh, AI, programs, artificial intelligence programs. Were, so in a sense, we're at the front door. We get to see how it plays out. And, and then both of those have ER applicability. So we're kind of right there. We don't have to invent yeah. it, but we can yeah. support it. And then we can get right. feedback. You guys can integrate it directly into your, 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 uh, into practice in a way that, 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 you know, a company out on their own couldn't do. That's really neat. What, what's uh so if if I were to if I were a physician that worked at at VEP you know what kind of um, opportunity would I have to to be involved in in these things I mean is this kind of stuff that I I learn about in a newsletter or are there are there opportunities for me you know for, for the for the average you know um, um, VEP physician to to sort of have a have a role to play or a voice in the in kind of your um, VEP ventures activities we put together an investment committee mm. to look at potential yeah. investments and so this was all volunteer people said hey i'm interested there's about seven individuals who will look at any new idea that comes forward and it's been surprising to me how many new ideas come forward once you say you're yeah. interested and then they'll make a recommendation says hey we think this is good let's invest or we don't think we should invest in this and then the company will make the investment or not and then all of those investments are owned by vep ventures which is a separate company that has uh, funds that it's invested. And then all of the BEP shareholders are owners in BEP ventures. So as individuals, we wouldn't really get a chance to pre-IPO yeah. investing yeah. companies or in the early stages, angel or series A investors. Well, now the BEP shareholders can invest in all those early stages by being part of That's BEP so cool. ventures. And as those companies mature, all the providers get to benefit from that. So that's another advantage. And people in BEP who have ideas have brought them forward. We encourage that. And those who want to take BEP into new ideas, then we encourage that. They say, well, we've never had a vice president of provider development, mm. somebody who helps individuals who are challenged at one point in their career or another. Maybe it's health, maybe it's marriage, mm. maybe it's stress, maybe it's uh, burnout. And so we have a VP who will work individually with those doctors. How do we come up with that idea? Somebody kicked out the idea. Somebody else said, I'd like to be that person. And we made it happen. That's we funded awesome. it. It sounds like a, it sounds like a great culture. And, and, uh, you know, we, we talk to physicians all the time who are really interested in, in, uh, investment, angel investing and, uh, finding ways to, uh, to, you know, put their money to work, you know, and, and it sounds like a, sounds like VUPs create a really great environment for folks. And there's also a lot of entrepreneurs. I mean, this is, this is one of the things I think is unique about emergency medicine physicians is that they're there. There's a kind of entrepreneurial streak, kind of a, um, omnivore, omnivores, uh, so to speak of, of, uh, of, of ideas and, and, 
and, uh, and, and definitely not tidy, you know, um, one track mind people. You get a lot of, get a lot of ADD people in the, in the ER, which is a good thing for investment, right? Yeah. And encourage that they're to have creative ideas. Maybe it's ideas around bed ahead or getting patients moving through the ER more yeah. quickly or bringing telemedicine outside the hospital when yeah. COVID struck. Uh, you really were looking for innovative ideas. How do you continue to treat people and yet keep your providers safe? Uh, so you want to foster all of those uh, innovative ideas. Well, this has been really fun. And, and, and I know that, that, uh, I, I think you and I could probably talk for another hour. Um, but, but <laughs> I, 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 we probably need to wrap it up. So I, I'd like to ask, I'd love to, we, we kind of touched on this earlier, but I know it's something that, that you care about and have thought about. And so I'd love to get your, your thoughts on it. Can you, can you, um, can you speak to physician burnout in emergency medicine and just kind of w- w- what you think, what you think? Um, I mean, we, we got a lot of emergency physicians listening to this podcast. So, you know, what, what are, what are your, what are your um, thoughts and, and encouragements for folks who are, who are, are at that point in their career? Huge investment goes into creating a physician. It's four years of college followed by four years of medical school followed by three or four years of residency. That's 12 years of education to get somebody to the point of being a physician. That's an incredibly valuable individual, and we have to protect that resource. Uh, If you had a plane that was worth $100 million, you'd protect it. Same thing with physicians. So if a physician starts to feel the burnout, we need to pull you back and figure out what's going on, why. Maybe it's because you're working too many shifts. You bought a mortgage, a house with a big mortgage, and you got to work 20 shifts a month, and it's yeah. too much. We'll help you figure out how to work backwards so you get back first to the healthy number of shifts where you're happy, and then we can figure out the mortgage yeah. and other things. Maybe it's um, a stress with the nurses, and we figure out why are you not uh, succeeding with the nurses. And, and the nurses will tell you. We'll have our vice president of provider development talk to the nurses. They'll say, we loved him, but in the last three years, he's become grumpy. He barks at us. He yells about this, and there's a change in behavior, and we start to dig into the why. So don't be afraid to make changes. It may be that uh, all work and no play makes Johnny a dull boy. Maybe you need to have some leadership role where you're doing committee activity. Maybe that gives you more legroom. Maybe it's going overseas and working Mm. for a month. Uh, VEP will make it available. Anybody who wants to leave, take time off, go work internationally, do it. And you come back and you realize, wow, my skills really yeah. are important. I once had an episode where a doctor got sued not once but twice, a relatively short order, mm. nine months. And he was quite yeah. burned out. Um, and he was ready to mm. quit medicine. And he took himself off the schedule. Um, so I drove up to where he was at, spent the night in his house. The next day, he and I went rock climbing. We rock climbed all day, and it wasn't until about 4 o'clock that evening uh, where he suddenly started to open up and was ready to talk about some of his feelings. And that doctor was able to go back on the schedule and get back on the horse, so to speak, and be a very productive member of his department. And so you've got to be willing to spend the time with the individuals to help them if they get to that point. They all still have all the potential in the world. Just got to get through that rough spot. That's great. Well, this is this has been really delightful, Steve, and I, I appreciate you making the time uh, to to come on the show. and And I'd love to have you back sometime if you're up for it. We we we'd love to dig deeper. Happy to do it. Awesome. Well, bet yeah, all the best to you and and uh, and VEP and uh, and again, it's been a pleasure. We thank you for joining us and and look forward to talking to you again. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Branch Out, a podcast by Sycamore. 
be sure to visit sycamoredocs.com to connect with us, access the show notes, and sign up for our newsletter.